This is episode number 66 with Brad Feld of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. now, the Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Go, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Barbara Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high-quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Founder Podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your earbuds with me. I'm just going to give you a quick update what's happening in my world because I haven't given you guys one in a while. Uh, we're working actually on some really, really cool projects. One in particular called the Founders Club. I'm really, really excited about this just because you know we have so many people in the founder community now. Our community reaches over a million wide on all of our assets. And pretty much, there's no way that people can interact. There's no way where people can connect and there's there's no way that people can make a ruckus together and, and help and support each other. So, you know, we've got these massive tribes on like Instagram or, you know, on our podcast that you're listening to right now or on the magazine or the blog or any of our social channels. So pretty much I want to connect everyone together. I want to give the founder tribe a home and uh, that's going to be Founders Club. So I'm really, really excited about Founders Club and it'll be spelt with founder without the E, typical founder style, a little bit, I guess, edgy or, you know, hip or cool. We're, we're trying anyways. Uh, so yeah, look, we're, we're working on the Founders Club. That's going to go be going live soon, which I'm really excited about. And uh, yeah, guys, please get in touch if you want to know more. Please make sure you sign up to our newsletter uh, if you go to our website, foundermag.com. And another thing they were working on is a super cool project to relaunch one of our courses, Instagram Domination. And uh, that's going to be exciting. So a lot of exciting things happening, a lot of interviews being done. We actually have got up until June next year booked front covers for 2016. So yeah, things are, things are moving along nicely. Can't complain. Business is growing fast. Our community is growing fast. And uh yeah, we're, we're just trying to stay afloat and provide you guys as much valuable content as we can. So enough about me. 
That's what's been happening in my world in Melbourne, Australia. Now to today's guest, Brad Feld. Now, this guy is an absolute rock star. Guys, he's he's received over thousands and thousands and thousands of pitches. And he's one of the co-founders of Techstars, which is an early-stage venture fund and startup accelerator. It's one of the big ones, like Y Combinator, 500 Startups, and then, yeah, there's Techstars, which is a very, very notable uh, startup accelerator and, and, and venture fund, early-stage venture fund. And he also co-founded Foundry Group, which is a is, is a VC firm. So this guy knows his stuff when it comes to investing and and what to look for in a great idea. And uh, he was an early-stage investor in like Zynga or Fitbit. These are massive, massive companies. So, you know, we talk everything investing and entrepreneurship. We also talk about the dark side of entrepreneurship, which, you know, I want to shine a spotlight on. Like, you know, Brad has openly admitted that, you know, he's gone through some tough times as an entrepreneur. And, you know, I think we all need to acknowledge that, that entrepreneurship, you know, starting your own business, you know, building a startup is is not for everyone. And there's incredibly stressful times where, you know, we, we feel like giving up or we're so stressed out that we just like, it's just, you know, it's just crazy. And running a company is, is not for everyone. And, uh, you know, Brad really talks about quite candidly what it is really like. So I'm sure you guys will really resonate with that because for those of you listening, uh, you're either, you know, just about to start a business or you want to start a business or you're somewhere along your, your journey as a founder or an entrepreneur. So yeah, I think you're really going to like this one, guys. There's a lot of gold shared, as always. We only share stuff that's got the gold. So that's enough from me. Let's jump into the show. I'm just going to ask you uh, the same question we ask every one of our guests, and that is, uh, how did you get your job? Well, I didn't really get my job. I created my job. Currently, I'm a partner in a venture firm, a foundry group that I started with three other partners in 2007. And if I go back in time through the path that got me here, most of the things I've been involved in were things that I co-founded or helped start. So my first company was one I started in 1987. I sold that company to a large public company. I started making investments with some of my own money. I helped start a few companies. And then I was one of four co-founders of a venture firm that turned into Mobius Venture Capital. And then in 2007, I co-founded Foundry Group. So that's how I got my job. Yeah, wow. And uh, you co-founded Techstars too, right? I did co-found Techstars. Can you tell us about your first company? What was it about? You know, How, how did that, yeah, that's, that's a long time ago, at least 20 years. Was it a tech company? Yeah, it was a tech company. It's actually pushing 30 years, right? Well, it wow. started in... 1987. I co-founded it with a partner, a guy named Dave Jilk. We started with no money. We raised no money. So we self-funded the business and we built a business that was over seven years, about a $2 million a year business that was profitable because we had to be profitable. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it was acquired in 1993 by a public company called Ameridata. Okay. I see. And what, what did that company do exactly? We were a software consulting company back at the very, very beginning of when PCs were starting to be used in business environments 
as more than just individual computers. So we wrote a lot of software that was accounting, back office, reporting, some sales and marketing related, all on PCs that were networked together. So we had to also deal with networking the PCs together. And if you go back to 1987 to 1990, even just getting software running on a PC that was something other than, you know, a piece of packaged software was quite challenging. I see. And then what happened next? You started, you sold the company and you started doing some investments. Yes, I sold, I sold uh, Fell Technologies to this large public company. I worked with them for a couple of years, but while I was working with them, I started actively investing as an angel investor in a bunch of early stage companies. I was living in Boston at the time. And between 1994 and 96, I made about 40 angel investments, you know, smallish investments, $25,000, investments. But I was often part of the initial couple of hundred thousand dollar round that the companies raised. Mm-hmm. Those investments were made at the very, very beginning of the commercial internet. So sort of the rise of the commercial internet. So there was a lot of activity around that. Oh, I see. And were any of those investments uh, notable that anyone would know, like the company now? Some of them would include uh, an early one that I did was a company called Harmonix, which is the company that made Guitar Hero and then acquired by Viacom, created Rock Band while they were part of Viacom, were spun out of Viacom, back to an independent company, and then did uh, Dance Central. And um, for people that are remember Rock Band and remember it fondly, Rock Band Four is coming out this fall, and I've uh, I'm on the board of Harmonix again and an investor in Harmonix again. And Rock Band Four is pretty epic. Oh wow! Um, you've also been a, an investor in uh, Zynga, MakerBot, and Fitbit. Yeah, those three companies were investments from Foundry Group. Yep. Uh, those were all investments that uh, I guess uh, Zynga was made in 2007. Fitbit was either 2009 or 2010. Uh, MakerBot was 2010. So, you know, those are all investments that were made by the firm that I'm currently part of, and uh, they've been a lot of fun. Mm. So the reason that, uh, you know, we connected, uh, one of your co-authors contacted me and said that uh, you you guys have been traveling around, you've, you've just released a book, and also the fact that you've heard over 20,000 pitches. So you've been an entrepreneur longer than I've been alive. So you're 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 a veteran. You're you're you you've achieved mastery. So first of all, can you tell us a little bit about your book? And and I'd love to delve deep into pitches. What do you look for? But let's let's talk about your book first. So the book is a book called Startup Opportunities. Uh, know when to quit your day job is the subtitle. That's six book I've written. So I've been you know I would say practicing and continue to practice uh, writing good books. I did it with a fellow named Sean Wise, who's a professor at Ryerson in Toronto. And we were really trying to answer the question, is this idea any good? Recognizing that the question itself is not the fundamental question. So we tried to, we tried to write a, a book that is the book you read before you read a book like The Lean Startup by Eric Reese or any of the books by Steve Blank. We tried to create some context for somebody who was thinking about creating a new company as to what kinds of different things they should be thinking about in terms of organizing the opportunity and and deciding whether they should go all in on the opportunity. I see. And 
And that's that's that that's a really good problem to tackle for for aspiring and novice entrepreneurs or someone that's just about to start their company or wanting to start something. You know, that's actually a question we get a lot at, at Founder. It's like, I want to start a business. I don't know where to start. I don't think I can come up with a good enough idea. How do I know if my idea is valid? So, so you know, what what are your thoughts? Like, uh, what, what do you say to someone asking that question? I try very quickly to make sure that the person understands that it's not about the idea, but it's about the execution of the idea. So, mm-hmm. you know, in, in a lot of ways, the idea at best is just price of admission. And the key thing for somebody who's starting to work on something is to make sure that they're really obsessed about the idea, to make sure that it's something they care about, to make sure that, you know, they're focusing on building a product and creating a product that matters, not just to them, but also to prospective customers. It's about building a team that has a diverse set of skills so that as you're starting out, if you have some strengths, but some, you know, everybody has strengths and weaknesses, you have some areas you know nothing about, you actively build a founding team that's more than just you in the context of trying to do it. And we will go through a bunch of other things as well in terms of, you know, how to think about the market that you're going after, how to think about incumbents that presumably you'd want to disrupt with your new business. We give some advice in the book about how to think about investors and how investors think about new opportunities and new businesses and what makes them interesting or not interesting to a potential investor. Hmm. And how do you know, because you know, you've, you've received 20,000, you've done like heard over 20,000 pitches. How do you know if an idea or, or like, what, what do you, what do you look for when you're investing in, in an entrepreneurial company? Yeah. So, so the question of how do I know if an idea is any good or not, I can't answer because <laughs> I have no clue. Um, but this, the second part of the question is quite interesting, which is what do we look for? And, and this is really important for every entrepreneur to understand, every founder to understand, which is that individual investors are different. I like to talk about uh, VCs as being like Dungeons and Dragons characters. Right? Some are elves and some are wizards and some are mages and some are orcs and some are dwarves and some are trolls. I mean, they're all different. And the mistake is to think of an investor as a single archetype, a single thing. So it's key to understand what your investor is interested in, what your investor wants to invest in and participate in. And if you reflect that back on on me personally, there's really a handful of things. My partners and I at Foundry have a set of filters that we use to basically say no to almost everything in 60 seconds because we don't want to waste a founder's time on something that we're unlikely to invest in. So those filters include our themes, which are the areas that we invest in at Foundry. And if people are interested in that, if you go to foundrygroup.com slash themes, you can see all the different themes we invest in. We're early stage investors. So if you've raised more than $3 million, you're too late for us. And we only invest in companies in the U.S., So if you get through those three filters, then we're focused on three things. The first is, do we have affinity for the idea or the product that you're creating? We don't have to be users. We don't have to, you know, live with it every day, but we have to have affinity for it. It has to be interesting to us. Second, are you as a founder and your founding team obsessed about your product? And if you're not obsessed about your product, we're not going to be interested and it's very different than being passionate about your product. It's very easy for people to talk about how passionate they are about things. It's very different to be 
obsessed. And in, in, in my lingo, there's ways to be healthily obsessed. And then the last is, do the founders want to be partners with us for the long term as much as we want to be partners with them? So we really view it as a two-way relationship. If you know they just look at us as in, as money and don't really care about that long-term relationship, uh, it's probably not going to be a fit with us. And and vice versa, if, if for some reason we don't feel excited about this long-term relationship that we're going to have to develop with this founder, that's not going to be interesting to us either. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. Um, you mentioned obsessed versus passionate. Can you delve a little deeper on that? Because you know, I think if you want to build a successful business, it has to be an obsession. If you want to build like an eight-figure business, you know, even a seven-figure business, it has to be some sort of obsession. You know, how can you make that a healthy obsession and what is the difference between obsessed versus passionate? I'll start with the difference. Hey, man, I'm super passionate about being on your podcast. You wouldn't believe how passionate I am to be talking to you right now. Right? It's just, it's enthusiasm. It's excitement. And I actually think passion belongs in the bedroom. Like it, it, it's a place for it. And you know, it, it's good to be enthusiastic about what you're working on, but that's not a sufficient condition. That's just, you know, you'd hope that everybody's enthusiastic about what they're working on. Obsession is that you believe you are placed on this planet to build this product or to solve this problem. This is the thing you most want to do. It's the thing that you wake up thinking about. It's, it's the thing you can't quit. You just have to keep after it. And that's what obsession is. Unhealthy obsession is when that gets in the way of being a human being and existing, you know, uh, on this planet with other humans. And healthy obsession is when that drives you, but you recognize that to be able to be driven over a long period of time, you actually do need to have a life and you need to have an ability to engage deeply in what you're doing, but also separate from it and, and uh, get some rest and take care of yourself as well. Mm. You know, there's there would be a lot of entrepreneurs listening to this and that would relate to them. And I think a struggle would be, you know, how do you separate yourself from, you know, your daily life if it is an obsession? Like that's something I actually even struggle with right now, Brad. Like I probably should be going to the gym, you know, but I, I, I just, I put it off because I, I don't know, I just do um, because, you know, the company and, and founder means so much more. And, you know, what advice would you have around that, man? Well, you know, that's, that's less of a what's the right thing to do and more about are you investing in yourself for the long term so that you can be as maximally effective as possible, you know, in the pursuit of your business. So, for example... If you never slept ever, that would work for about, I don't know, a couple of days. And at the end of a couple of days, you would be so trashed that you would be completely ineffective at whatever you were doing. It wouldn't matter how much time you spent on it, you would be useless. And if you continued to not sleep, at some point, you would probably fall asleep anyway. And it probably would take you a long time, longer than it would be if you had worked on a more measured schedule and had at least gotten a little bit of sleep each night to recover. And sort of in the end, the productivity that you accomplished in that period of no sleep is questionable whether it was better than if you had, you know, measured things out over time. There are moments in time in the life of your company where you have a deadline and you're going to have to get something done by the deadline and not be able to sleep. And that's okay. 
But it's not okay if you manage your whole existence around your business like that. And if you take it to another level, if you think about your life, right, you got to eat, you got to go to the bathroom, you got to sleep. You have control over how healthy you are and what the energy dynamics around you are for both your physical health and your mental health. And if you choose not to take care of that, that's a choice you're making. It's an illusion for most people if they think that ignoring those things can actually make them more productive over a long period of time. So the challenge is really to view it with a combination of the short term, what do I got to get done right now? And the long-term arc of how can I sustain this activity that I'm doing over a long period of time? Mm, you know, that's a great answer. I'm curious, have you ever experienced burnout? Yes, I've experienced intense burnout. I've also been depressed uh, several times and been very public about that, especially most recently. And uh, I had a six-month depressive period uh, for the first six months of 2013 that was driven by a number of things, including physiological exhaustion and physical exhaustion, and then boredom with an aspect of how I was thinking about what I was doing and the work that I was doing. You know, reflecting on that period, that six-month period where I was depressed, where I'll, I'll use a, a more loaded word than burnout. I think a lot of people talk about being burned out when they're actually depressed. Uh, you know, when you're in that, it's very hard to figure out what to do other than tactical things to take care of yourself and to get back to a better headspace. When I reflected on it, you know, I realized a lot of the underlying reasons for why I ended up being depressed and made some changes to the way I was working and the way I was living my life so that I wouldn't be as susceptible to that particular set of stressors again. Presumably, that would lead to uh, another depression. Mm. Thank you for sharing that with us. Like, uh, can you tell us like what things you'd recommend entrepreneurs to do? Because it's such a, it, it is kind of like a taboo kind of topic that, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs go through that, that, uh, they don't actually often come out about. And that's around, you know, because it's, you put so much hard work into your company and it has to be an obsession. You work so hard and, it's so hard to have that, you know, like you described, like, uh, you know, having a little bit of balance and then, yeah, you put like so much emphasis on your company and it can be such a, it's, it's such a, so stressful and all these things like, and then, you know, the media, I guess, glamorizes the life of an entrepreneur and it looks easy. And then, yeah, like what, what what's your take on that? Anyone that believes the bullshit of the media and the glamorous life of an entrepreneur is just is just wrong, right? So number one, being an entrepreneur is not glamorous. <laughs> yes. it, it, it's an awesome. It's awesomely hard work. If if your goal is fame and glamour, there's lots better ways to get it. If your goal is fortune making money, there's probably lots of easier ways to make money. So you know the, the, the sort of glamorization of being an entrepreneur, I put in the category of total bullshit and. It's easy for the media to do it. It's fun. Everybody likes, you know, to, to have things that are popular and trendy. Uh, this shit's just really hard. And there's a lot of things that are incredibly disappointing. There's lots of moments and periods of failure. There are intense stretches of exhaustion and frustration. And that's just the way it goes. And if, if you're obsessed about 
this product that you want to bring to life, this business that you want to create, you know, you'll get through it. And if you're not, you won't. So, you know, step one is recognize that it's, it's just really hard fucking work. And step two is to recognize that we're all on this planet for a finite period of time and, you know, choose how you want to spend that time. Mm. And, you know, do you think you can build an eight figure business if you don't work 80 hours a week? Sure. I think you can create anything with focused energy. And I don't think it's a requirement that you work a certain number of hours a week. There will be weeks where you work 80 hours. So separate the idea of working 80 hours a week every week from you have to work 80 hours a week to be successful. In my first company, uh, I probably worked you know 90 to 100 hours a week for the better part of, of seven years. Today, even at age 49, I still probably work uh, 60 to 70 hours a week because I enjoy what I'm doing and I care about what I'm doing and I want to do it well. And so the number of hours that you're working should be correlated and linked to your obsession and focus on what you're doing and your belief that it's important. And I think there's this illusion of if I just work more hours, I will be successful. I don't think there's any correlation between those two. You know, there are plenty of people who work 80 hours a week and don't have success. And there are plenty of people who work 80 hours a week on things that they're not obsessed about. And, you know, they, they show up and they put the time in, but they don't necessarily dig deep into what needs to happen. The flip side of it is you can have many stretches where you're working, you know, 50, 60, 40 hours a week if you're working on the right things in the context of your business. The idea that you just have to be there all the time and it has to be the only thing you have to do, I think, is mythology that's been promulgated for a long time on lots of different dimensions. I would separate this whole rant from the idea of working incredibly hard and being very, very focused on what you're doing, right? If your idea is that you're going to, you know, clock in at nine and clock out at five and you're going to work Monday to Friday and on the weekends you're going to do something else, that's not a, that's not a, uh, an entrepreneurial life. And if that's what your expectations are about how you want to live your life, no problem, but don't don't expect that you're going to have an entrepreneurial life because that's not how it works. Mm. I'm also curious, like you've you you know you've met a lot of entrepreneurs, successful ones, not successful ones. What's the difference you think between the ones that make it and the ones that don't? Can you tell us some characteristics, some common traits? Well, sure. Almost all the successful ones have had plenty of failures along the way, and every great company I've ever been involved in has had at least one near death experience. So, you know, the, the, this sort of separation between success and failure, I think, is probably a false dichotomy. I think it's easy to reflect back and say, wow, look at that person. You know, she's been really successful. And it's relatively easy to forget all the things that she did that didn't work and all the down parts of the cycle where it was really, really difficult and miserable and all the projects that had to get shut down. So I guess I would encourage founders who are going after it for the first time to recognize that it's going to be not a straight path upward. And, you know, oftentimes what you, what you read in the press or what you, what you interpret from whatever the populist message is, there's a pretty big disconnect between the story you hear and reality mm. where the story you hear is simplified. You know, the, the heroes are more heroic. The goats are more goatish you know, uh, I wrote a blog post this morning and, you know, the, the, the public media loves 
rags to riches to rags to riches again stories, right? So you end mm. up getting these story arcs that, you know, they're they're engaging, but they don't really reflect reality. Mm. Yeah, that's so true. You know, I, I have to ask you because you've heard so many pitches. Like, can can you give uh, just like two or three pieces that our audience can take away around making a good pitch? What makes a good pitch? Well, I'll give I'll give one that I think is the key, which is show, don't tell. The biggest miss, I think, on most people when they're pitching is they try to tell you what they're, what they're going to do. And instead of telling me what you're going to do, show me what you're going to do. And you can show me oftentimes with, with slides and words, but adjust the approach so that I know what you're doing and why anyone cares rather than understanding the mechanics of what you're going to create and the mechanics of how you're going to create it. Mm. And I'm curious, you know, you've made a lot of investments. What's the best investment you've ever made and why? Define best investment. Most return. Biggest return I've uh, investment I've had has been Fitbit. Mm. And how'd you find those guys? Or how'd they find you? I was introduced to them by another investor who had done their seed round, a guy named Jeff Clavier. And Jeff introduced me to James Park, the CEO. I had just started to play around with this idea that I was calling human instrumentation. And Fitbit was just shipping their first product, uh, their first tracker. And I did a 30-minute phone call with James, and I passed. And I just wasn't – my mind wasn't ready for what, they were, what James was talking about. I wasn't inspired by the call. I was probably busy and distracted with something else. So I passed. And nine months later, uh, Jeff again reached out to me along with another investor, John Callahan, who was also part of the seed round. And I know John and Jeff well, and I've been friends with both of them for quite some time. And this time they pushed me a lot harder. They said uh, John was uh, aggressive about me spending time with it. And Jeff basically said I was an idiot if I didn't do the investment. And the end result was this time I spent a little more time with James, although I was in Alaska, so I did at my house up there. So I did a video conference with him. But they made incredible progress in nine months. And instead of doing a phone call this time, I did a video call. And I really got much more of a sense of James. I was open with John and Jeff about why I had passed, which is I just wasn't inspired by that first call. And they both said I just completely misread James that he was incredibly intense, totally obsessed about this product. And he was a kind of founder I'd love working with. And, and I was, they were right. And I was just totally wrong. I just totally missed it on that first call. And I'm really glad they pushed me because uh, I led, uh, or we foundry led that, uh, the round after the seed round. And then we, we led a round after that. And, you know, the, the rest is uh, history. And, and, you know, it's been a very complex business, it's grown incredibly fast. We've had, created a market that didn't exist before our products and then subsequently is now a very crowded market with lots of people who are chasing after us. And it's been, uh, it's been a blast. I mean, I learned a ton from the experience. You know, I, I had other very fast growing companies that I've been involved in before, probably the most recent one prior to this that was growing at a similar kind of rate was Zynga. And I was involved in Zynga till just before they went public. And it, it was by far the fastest growing company I've been involved in. And, you know, just the kinds of things you learn from those experiences are very, very powerful. Mm. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Uh, look, I know we've got to wrap up, Brad, but I just have a couple of questions around that. Like, 
you said that uh, there was a lot that you learnt uh, being around Zynga and, and it's one of the fastest growing companies you've been around. You know, what are some key takeaways that our audience can learn from your insights being, you know, an investor there? Well, er- early in Zynga, the company was cash flow positive from almost inception or from inception. So they never really used any investor money. And Mark Pincus, the CEO, had this notion of the size of the bets he was going to make. And he raised money as he was generating positive cash flow because having more money on his balance sheet gave him more confidence or comfort that he could make bigger bets where he knew that some of the bets he was going to make weren't going to work. So one big lesson was sizing the bets for the size of the company, but making sure you have the balance sheet to support it. Another was I really created my ideal board meeting as a result of the Zynga board meetings. I've been to you know tens of thousands of board meetings at this point. And one of the books that I wrote was a book called Startup Boards for anybody that wants to dig into sort of the, the view of how to be effective with your board and how to get an effective board of directors. In the case of these board meetings, we disconnected the financial reporting completely from the board meeting. So the financial reporting would happen once a month on a regular cadence. And the board meetings were almost always either one slide or one, you know, just some bullet points that Mark wrote on the whiteboard at the beginning of the meeting. And these were of the broad topics he wanted to cover. And he used his board in the board meetings as a brain trust, as a group to really dig deep on strategy and dig deep on hard issues. And he used the board members both collectively and individually on a continual basis in a way that he as a CEO viewed they could help him. So rather than have a board meeting where you show up and you report out to your board and they ask you a bunch of questions and everybody turns pages on a presentation, these board meetings were really substantive around issues that made a difference to the business. So that that approach was, was something I learned. I also, I had never been involved in a company that hired as quickly as Zynga did. I've been involved in plenty of high growth companies, but we went from I don't know, a hundred to a thousand people in less than a year. And, you know, that kind of growth is really hard to manage. And I think Zynga managed its headcount growth up to about 1500 people extraordinarily well. And I think things, things started to go off the rails between 1500 and 3000 people, because all of a sudden we were hiring lots of people who were not necessarily on the mission. They were people who were excited about coming to work for this super fast-growing company that was on a path to go public, you know, and was exciting versus people who were coming and, and really felt like the thing that the company was doing was something that was super important to them. Mm. You know, this is this is really fascinating. Look, we've got we've got to wrap up, Brad. I could talk to you all day, but uh, look, uh, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, just uh, one last piece was uh, where's the best place our audience can find you? Best place is www.feld.com on the web or at bfeld on Twitter. Awesome. Well, look, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Hey, guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, 
and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.